to the Gibson Girl Review, the book review podcast that rescues antique novels from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Join us every week as we rediscover forgotten stories from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and uncover just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. And welcome back to another episode of the Gifts and Girl Review. I'm Jacinta Meredith. And I'm Amy Drown. We are continuing our first ever themed month today with another spooky mystery story, or rather, a book that we thought was going to be a spooky mystery <laughs> story. We're not doing very well picking books for this theme month, okay. are we? <laughs> in our defense, it was in the title. It is! <laughs> I was like, this is definitely a safe choice. <laughs> of all of the titles that we have talked about this month so far, this would be the safest, <laughs> you would think. But no. Most definitely be spooky. <laughs> yes. Or at least some kind of mystery, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So yes, yeah. today's review is going to be interesting. It's a first for the show, actually, which we didn't realize nope. when we started reading this book. But it's actually going to be really fun to talk about because we're kind of diving into a whole new world with today's book. But before we get to that, we have some exciting news. My co-host sitting right here, folks, ladies and gentlemen, Jacinta Meredith, is an award-winning author! Woo! <laughs> Well, yes. I think technically it's an award-winning writer since, you know, I'm hey, not published yet. You've had devotionals <laughs> and short stories published before. That's you true. are an author, girl. Own it. <laughs> okay. I'll try. And now you are the official winner of the 2023 Genesis Award for Historical Fiction. Yes. <laughs> I honestly can't really believe it. So tell us about what you won and how you won it and what story and all that kind of fun stuff about this award. Okay. Well, this is the American Christian Fiction Writers Award. It's the biggest one for unpublished writers. They've got a bunch of categories. Obviously, I won the historical one. And you have to submit like your whole book. So you have to submit a synopsis and the first 15 pages. Okay. And then it goes through three rounds of judging and... I was the winner this time, and I kind of sat and stared at the screen because I couldn't actually be there in person, sadly. But I stared at that screen in shock, I think, for like a full minute. And my <laughs> husband had to assure me that, yes, I had heard the name correctly because I was so sure I had misheard. <laughs> it just didn't seem possible. So what was the story you submitted? Can you tell our listeners about the story that won? Yes. So it is called A Picture of the Past. And it's basically Scarlett O'Hara meets the Oregon Trail. Ooh. A spoiled debutante manages to lose her family's fortune and land them on a wagon train to California. Ah. So this is the book that brought you and I together because yes. you were researching California history. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> if it had not been for this particular book, I would not be on this podcast right now. <laughs> that is so cool. Awesome. So where can our listeners read your award-winning stuff? My devotionals are published through The Secret Place, so you have to actually purchase the devotional through there. Mm -hmm. But for short stories, if you go to my website, which is justintomeredith.com, uh -huh. then right there up front, you can click on, I think I've got four short stories up right now that have been published. And I tend to actually do like literary short stories versus historical but I love them. You know, I'm a little biased. Well, but. I think our <laughs> listeners are going to love them too. So we will put a link to Jacinta's website right in our show notes today. So you guys can all go check it out and see pictures of the award that she won. And everybody give her a shout out and a little clapping hands emoji comment on her socials there because this is a huge deal <laughs> yes. in writing circles. This is one of the awards that gets publishers and agents to sit up and take notice. So 
she's playing this calm and cool right now, but this is a huge <laughs> deal for her, and we are so excited. Well, I have had a little bit of time to get used to the idea, <laughs> but I am definitely using it as a platform to jump from, so I have started querying specifically for this book. Awesome! You know, there's just that little confidence boost when you're able to be like, hey, this manuscript yeah. won an award. Don't you want to publish it? Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll see what comes. Well, we look forward to a future announcement on the podcast when we get to say you are officially contracted with a publisher and we get to see this book in print. <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> so again, check out Jacinta's website. We've got a link in the show notes and you can see all the great stuff about her writing journey and follow along with her to see where it goes from here. Yes, but enough about me. Let's get back to the book for today. <laughs> That's about the best kind of segue we yeah. can have. Right? There's no way to jump from award-winning historical fiction to, to this. the book that we're talking yes. about. Okay, today. I know, I know. Like we said, for today's book, we are diving into a whole new world of Gilded Age literature. But first, Jacinta, tell everybody what today's book is. Today's book is The Crime of Halloween by Laura Jean Libby, first published in 1891. At least the hardcover edition was. Exactly. Again, like we said, this title, The Crime of Halloween. Doesn't it sound perfect? It sounds like a total shoe-in yes. for our spooky mystery month. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, can I just point out here that you all know how one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I have lots of old books on my own personal library shelves that I had not read yet, mm -hmm. but I am not the only one with that problem, am I? I'm afraid not. <laughs> <laughs> no, this book has been sitting on my bookshelf for years, begging to be read. So when Amy mentioned a spooky themed month, I was like, I have just the book. Yes. It can stop bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We were talking about this month and she says, I have a book about Halloween. I'm like, perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm actually really glad you did suggest this book because it turns out The Crime of Halloween is actually a dime novel. Like an honest to goodness dime novel. <laughs> yes. This is our first dime novel review. And we didn't know that <laughs> before we started reading. For starters, the book that you have is not a paperback. No, it's a hard copy. It's a gorgeous book. Yes, exactly the kind that you would buy to put on your old book decor shelf. Yeah. But when you start reading it... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, my initial reaction to this story was... Jacinta, what the <laughs> heck have you gotten us into here, girl? Because I was just cracking up from page one. Oh my gosh, you and me both. <laughs> okay, so like at first, I was actually generally worried because it had all that foreshadowing, if it can even be called foreshadowing. Yeah, it's like all these asides to the reader, like every paragraph almost or every chapter would end with, if only she had known that by tomorrow it would all be over. Or that was the beginning of the bitter end. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so at first I was wondering why on earth I had picked an obviously horrifyingly sad book. Yes. But because I so was not expecting the dime novel experience. Yeah. It probably took like three chapters before I was like, wait a second. They're just like playing all of this up. None of this is actually happening. Mm -hmm. And... At that point, I just began to laugh out loud at, like, <laughs> yes. everything. Yes. I was having immediate flashbacks to Travers from <laughs> last season with the horrible writing, the over-the-top melodrama, the implausible coincidences on every single oh page. Gosh. 
the coincidences. It was a lot of laughter. But the difference here is that Travers was not a dime novel. Okay. Travers was intended to be a legitimate piece of (laughs) adult fiction. The Crime of Halloween is a dime novel by a woman who turns out to be a very famous, very prolific dime novel writer from the Gilded Age. Yeah. And this is all supposed to be in this book. But even so, it is still hilarious. Oh, my gosh. I just kept thinking of all of these over-the-top telenovelas or something. Oh, that's a great comparison. It is a soap opera book. Yes. It is so crazy. Oh, it's hilarious. Remember that episode of Friends where they're watching the telenovela and they're trying to, like, guess what's happening and they're like push her down the stairs push her down the stairs that's what this book is it totally is you are rooting for someone in this story to get pushed down the stairs oh and actually (laughs) someone does fall down the stairs at one point in this book so it's just like yeah yeah anyway after i had finished reading it and you finished reading it and you were like oh this was a dime novel it just clicked and i was like that makes so much more sense i just thought that she basically she was a bad writer yeah I was trying to find a nicer way to say it, but yes. <laughs> yes. So this book was not a spooky mystery story. No. But dime novels were a huge phenomenon during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So we're going to have to talk about that a little bit. My personality type immediately wants to start finding a bunch of research materials about the history of dime novels and their publishing and all that kind of stuff. Which would be fascinating. It would be, but that would also be a very dark, deep rabbit hole, I think, that (laughs) I personally do not have time to get into right now. Fair. But we did find out a little bit about them, which we will talk about as we get further into this. But before we get carried away, let's tell everybody what the crime of Halloween is about. (laughs) Okay, so... I'm going to try to do this without too many spoilers, but really, I don't think we can do this episode without spoilers. Probably not, but we will try. All right. So Bonnie Lindaire is getting ready to marry her wealthy, handsome, true love, Leroy Pierpoint. But shortly before her wedding, dun, dun, dun. while hosting a Halloween party, <laughs> she meets a nefarious, reclusive neighbor who will do anything to make her his wife, including blackmailing her with a dreadful secret. And a few weeks later, one of Leroy's old flames, India, begins pursuing him. And after Bonnie Lynn goes into a jealous rage in front of witnesses, India turns up dead. So, of course... (laughs) You could do that at the end of every sentence here. (laughs) You totally could, yes. Of course, Bonnie Lynn is accused of the crime. So... She and Leroy go into hiding and are pursued by not only the police, but the man who would rather see Bonnie Lynn dead than married to anyone else. So yeah, this woman inexplicably leaves her Halloween party to go stare at her reflection in a pond at midnight because she heard that if you did that on Halloween, you would see reflected back to you the face of your future spouse. Hey, at least we got little Halloween in there. Yeah, so something happens on Halloween, but it's not the actual crime part of the story. Yeah. Or is it? I mean, it depends on which part you define as the crime. Yeah. Because there are a few. So from this pond, she's accosted by this evil man who forces her into marriage, but then he dies as they're leaving the church. By an unexplained assailant. Yeah, who is never actually explained. Yeah, they don't ever tell us who that is, right? Yeah, and they don't even tell you until the very end that, oh, the minister who married them was blind. Oh! Yeah, did you catch that? I did not catch that. So yeah, so some minister who is perfectly okay with performing a wedding ceremony at one o'clock in the morning in an abandoned old church on Halloween. That makes way more sense. I was wondering about the minister. Are you all (laughs) laughing with us yet? Because it's just like, oh my gosh. So yeah, so they're leaving the church in this carriage. They cross a bridge. Someone tries to hold him up. They fall into the river. He's found dead. So she's free to marry Leroy as originally planned. Yep. But then, of course, it turns out her mystery husband was not dead. And all heck breaks loose. Starts popping up everywhere. Oh, my gosh. The most amazing coincidental appearances. (laughs) Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. It's just ludicrous. And it's all fueled by jealousy. Yes. This bad guy, Basil, or Basil, however you want to pronounce it, 
is jealous that Bonnie Lynn loves Leroy. Bonnie Lynn becomes jealous when this woman, India, is flirting with Leroy. Leroy, even at one point, becomes jealous when he realizes that Bonnie Lynn and Basil had a relationship. Everybody in this book is jealous of everybody else. Everyone is jealous, which is why we have our title quote. Yeah. For this episode, we chose, Jealousy was indeed the bitter curse. (laughs) I feel like you have to say that, say everything in this book dramatically. It's the only way it works. You do. Yeah. You cannot say anything from this book with a straight face. Right. Which is why we have a professional reading the scene from this book, because we can't do it ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Because we'd just be laughing all the way through it. But it is honestly the perfect title quote. Yeah. Because when it boils down to it, exactly like you were saying... What drove most of the story on every single end was jealousy. Jealousy is the only motivating emotion for every character in this book, it seems. Yeah, basically. It definitely created all the drama they needed for a dime novel. Exactly. It's all about jealousy. With all that said, Jacinta, did you find any original reviews for this book? So I was really hoping I would because I wanted to see what people were saying about it, but Apparently, dime novels weren't really worth doing actual reviews because I could not find a single one. Neither could I. However, the book was really well advertised Mm -hmm. in conjunction with Libby's other books. Yeah, that's the same thing I found. But we did find a lot of articles and things about Laura Jean Libby herself. Yes. Which I think shed some light on this whole dime novel phenomenon itself. So what did you find out about Libby? I actually really enjoyed reading all of the articles about her. I went to the Library of Congress and looked up a bunch of her obituaries. Okay, when you say that, do you mean that you went to the actual physical Library of Congress in D.C.? No. Okay, because I know you live near D.C., so that's not out of I the do. realm of possibility. And I have gone there before mm. to do research. So jealous. Specifically for a picture of the past. But in this case, I looked at their online newspaper section. And all of the obituaries actually had much better information on Laura Jean Libby than modern articles that I found. Yeah. So what'd you find out? Okay, so essentially, Laura Jean Libby grew up and lived most of her life in Brooklyn, New York. According to a couple of her obituaries, her career started with a written composition at 14. Her teacher was so impressed with the composition that she actually brought Laura and the composition to a newspaper, and the editor of the newspaper agreed to publish it for $5, Mm. but instructed her not to come back until she was 18. Interesting. Which I thought was fascinating. And random. Completely random. Yeah, like, I'll publish this, but I don't want to see you again for four years. (laughs) But when she was 18, she did go back, and she was hired as a regular contributor to the same newspaper. And from there, she became a very well-known novelist Mm -hmm. who, at least according to a few sources, kind of followed the same formula for most of her books. A young girl left alone in the world attracts the attention of an older, wealthy gentleman. Cue drama and villains. And then it ends with a happy ever after. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple sources that also said she was debating between being an actress or a writer. Interesting. Yeah. Someone advised her to concentrate on the writing, so that's what she did. Hmm. And based on how well she did and how popular she was, that was apparently the right call. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. made the right choice. She ended up writing 82 dime novels. Wow. Many of which were printed first as serialized stories in newspapers, and at one point reportedly made like 60000 a year from her books. Wow. She also was an editor for a few years and attempted a love advice column (laughs) that did not go over well because she apparently did not have modern enough thinking. I was going to (laughs) say, I want to read some of those based on the kind of love advice her characters dole out in these books. What could she possibly have been advising in the real world? She was probably saying, okay, when he says that, you just need to swoon. Exactly. (laughs) Just faint. Yes. The date's going bad. Just faint. It'll take care of itself. He'll carry you everywhere. So if she was writing a romance advice column and writing all these romantic stories, was she married herself? No, actually. This was one of the most surprising parts. She apparently had a mother who was very strict and forbade her from marrying. Uh, so. And she listened to her mother? 
I know. That was my thought. But she waited for her mom to die before she got married. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds just like a plot from one of her books. Oh, my goodness. It does. (laughs) (laughs) She got married at age 36, two years after her mother's death. Wow. And basically, the most distinguishing thing about her life is how much she loved being a popular writer. She said one of her favorite things was seeing her books read across the country. She insisted on being known by her maiden name even after she got married. Really? And probably one of the most hilarious things is that she built her own giant gravestone with Laura Jean Libby inscribed on it and would actually go visit it so she could hear what people were saying about her. (laughs) Okay. She made her own tombstone. Yes. Before she died, obviously. Yes. And then would go visit her grave. I had to reread that like three times to make sure I got that. (laughs) Okay. I just can't help wondering, was she predisposed to writing dime novel fiction or did the dime novel writing turn her into this kind of woman? Because they seem made for each other. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, interestingly, it said in a couple of her obituaries that some people would ask her if she based any of the incidents in her novels off her own life. And her response was, oh, no, do I look as if I had had any adventures? I haven't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So apparently they were all in her head. That is really funny because I did have a chance to look up a couple things about her. And it seems like she was a really kind of savvy businesswoman, actually. Yeah. In terms of how she promoted her work and stuff. I mean, she did things like write stories about herself that looked like newspaper stories and they were paid advertisements that she paid to have in the papers. Really? Yeah. In the same year that The Crime of Halloween came out in 1891, there were a whole series of stories about how Laura Jean Libby ordered this fantastic $2,000 dress from Paris (laughs) that 200 young girls had been working on for six months. (laughs) To produce this dress for her. And yet when a reporter showed up at her house to say like, hey, can I see the dress? She refused to let anybody see it. But she wrote an entire long newspaper article about this dress and how everybody was jealous of it. And it was going to be the most beautiful dress ever seen in America. But then you look at the bottom of the article and it has the little like asterisks that indicate this is a paid advertisement oh my gosh but what she would mention was like oh she as the writer of such and such books is this fashion person i saw that article and i think that was in the february 1891 and then in march of 1891 a new fashion magazine launched with her as the editor oh that's so interesting oh my gosh i know right maybe the dress from paris was a real thing Or maybe it was just all a scam to help promote her upcoming fashion magazine enterprise. I'm going with it was a promotion. That's what I think, too. (laughs) Or she also did another one in 1890, the year before The Crime of Halloween came out. She was supposedly accused of plagiarism. Okay. There were these passages in one of her early books that were almost identical to a book that had been published a couple years before by an English author. Hmm. And there were all these articles, again, all around New York about she vehemently denies the charge of plagiarism. And when asked about it, she refuses to comment further because it would only help to promote a book that she's not very proud of and that she thinks is trash and shouldn't be read. Oh, fascinating. It was totally talking down about the book. But then when you look at it, there were never any articles saying who was actually accusing her of plagiarism. So... It also never went anywhere. There were like two or three weeks in early 1890 where this was suddenly a big story. Laura Jean Libby accused of plagiarism. And then that was it. Weird. So do you think that she put that in as well? Well, I think so, because one of the things it says in the article is, why would I want to talk about that book? That's an old rubbish book that's published by a man that I don't even write for anymore. I'm not going to help him make a dime off of my writing. But if you want to talk about either of my new books, I'm more than happy to oblige. Wow, that is so interesting. Isn't it? I don't know what to make of that. It could all be legitimate, but... When you hear that this woman also fabricated her own gravestone ahead of time just so she could go to the cemetery 
to hear what mourners would say about her. That's a good point. I can't rule out the possibility that she fabricated these stories about herself, too, just for publicity. Because she was a very wealthy and very famous writer. I mean... It's absolutely fascinating. Based on the search results? Yeah. She was a household name. Yeah. Like, everyone knew her. There was one point she signed a contract to write exclusively for a newspaper for 150 bucks a week for three years. Wow. That's really good. I know. I know people who write today for magazines who don't make that much a week. Yeah. And like you said, at one point, if she's making $60,000 a year in 1890s for her writing, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a livable salary today. My goodness. That is crazy. My goodness. That is absolutely fascinating. I think that that kind of goes back to your earlier comment about whether the dime novels made her into this person or she was made for the dime novels. And I'm pretty sure she was made for the dime novels. I think so. I think she had to have enough of this personality to see the opportunity and seize it. Yeah. You know, they probably fed off of each other. But she eventually managed to snag a husband despite all of that craziness, apparently. Yep, a Brooklyn lawyer. (laughs) Actually, I'm glad you brought up the subject of her husband because... Uh Uh-oh, what did you dig up about her husband? (laughs) Well, first, she did die in 1924. After having cancer surgery. Hmm. And there were a lot of obituaries for her, a lot of, you know, well-known popular novelist dies. But there were a couple articles that listed her property value. And she apparently died with over $10,000 in realty, like in her land, and then over 1000 in property. But she bequeathed her husband $5. $5. Specifically. $5. Yes. (laughs) My absolute favorite part. I can't wait to hear why. She said, and I quote, I do not make any other provision for my husband for good and sufficient reason well known to him and me. (laughs) I ran down to tell my husband this. Oh my gosh. What did your husband say about that? And he said, that man cheated. (laughs) Then he's like, a woman scorned. Oh my gosh. I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Even in death, she's like living out one of her dime novel (laughs) stories. It just is so hilarious and fascinating at the same time. She also specified that she wanted to be buried next to her mother and her sister could also be buried next to her, but no one else, including her husband. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Anyway, I laughed about that for such a long time. I have no words. (laughs) But as absolutely crazy as all of this sounds. You kind of can't help admiring a little bit because, I mean, she was clearly a very unusual, but also a very independent and strong-willed lady for that day and age. Yes. She took charge of her career. Yeah. She was very successful at it. It was impressive. It is impressive. All the different things she tried, all the books she put out. Yeah. I feel like I shouldn't admire her, and yet I feel also like I kind of do. I don't see why you can't admire her. Like, she was clearly smart. Because she was crazy. Well, okay. All right. A little bit crazy. But but kind of in a fun way. Yeah. Well, one other thing I did discover about her. Okay. Which will surprise you, I think. All right. In 1890, as I said, Laura Jean signed a three-year contract to write exclusively for a New York story paper, Mm -hmm. as they called them, meaning this is one of these periodicals that serializes dime novel fiction. And she was actually contracted to the same newspaper that published the old sleuth dime novels written by our season two, episode one author's father, (laughs) Harlan Halsey. Really? Yes. Remember we talked about that in that episode, how Rena Halsey used to help her father, the whole family, yes, helped produce his dime novel stories and that he was very prolific and successful. Yeah. He and Laura Jean Libby wrote for the same paper. Oh my gosh. What are the chances? Right? Who would have thought that you could connect the crime of Halloween, this crazy <laughs> dime novel romance, to America's Daughter? Our book all the way back from the very first episode this season. Oh my goodness. That is so fascinating. Isn't it? Small world. I mean, they were both in Brooklyn. They were both writing for the same New York paper. So I find that really interesting. And now that I think about it, now that I've actually read a dime novel, 
I can kind of see how some of that writing style had to rub off on Rena Halsey in writing a book like America's Daughter. Yeah, actually, now that you point it out, like in America's Daughter, they did occasionally do like those weird rituals. Okay, yeah. And they had the weird ritual here that she did in the beginning. Or like running away from the hotel in the middle of the night to try to go steal a piece of Plymouth Rock. Yeah. And climbing over the fence and impaling yourself on it. And a man has to come <laughs> rescue you. Or like canoes capsizing. Or right. That drama. Falling off the roof at a rooftop tea party. Oh, yes. And having to be saved by a young man. If you flat out looked at America's Daughter back in episode one, I would never in a million years have said that had anything to do with dime novels. No, definitely not. But now here in our penultimate episode of the season, now reading and talking about an actual dime novel, I can see the connective threads here. Yeah. I can see some influence. That is fascinating. So in talking about these crazy, flighty <laughs> characters who do insane things for insane reasons, <laughs> let's give you all a sample of what this book yes, is please. like. Let's read a dime novel today. Something that is on your bucket list. I know, right? Everybody <laughs> here has always wanted to read a dime novel or to have mm. a dime novel read to them. <laughs> and we are going to fulfill that wish today. We are super excited to welcome Michelle Morgan to our podcast as one of our new Gibson Girl Review readers. Michelle is going to read for us today a scene from fairly early on in the book. And Jacinta, I'm going to let you tell everybody what the scene is about. I think that this scene is a really good demonstration of the book itself. Yeah. It's a really good example of all of the dramatic sensationalism that takes place in the book. And gives you a really good sampling of just the type of writing and excitement you can expect in this story. There was a smile that meant mischief on her roguish red lips and a dancing light in those bluebell eyes. Twenty minutes of twelve, she murmured with a start. I really wonder now if the story is really true that the old servants tell. If a young girl goes to the black pool alone at midnight on Halloween and looks into its dark waters just as the clock strikes twelve, if she really will see the face of her future husband mirrored there. Well, here goes right or wrong, it will be such fun. Of course, my fate is settled, but wouldn't I stare in the most profound awe if the dimpling waters took the shape of Leroy's handsome face but of course they must if the test is true. My guests won't miss me, I am sure. Taking a long dark cloak from the wardrobe and throwing a thick veil over her golden curls, Bonnie Lynn stole carefully out of the house by way of the back stairway. Over the orchard and through the melon patch, over the dancing creek and through the narrow belt of forest, Bonnie Lynn flew with winged feet. The Black Pool was the name given to a small pond lying at the edge of the forest. It was not the pleasantest spot in the world, even with the sunlight shining on its still inky waters. But at night, with the shadows of the gigantic willows lying across it, and the ravens circling and whirling above it, it was a locality rather to be dreaded. But our dauntless, fun-loving heroine was a stranger to the word fear. There was a lighted clock in the church steeple down in the valley, and Bonnie Lynn could see, as she stopped, panting and breathless on the very edge of the pool, that it wanted but two minutes now to the midnight hour. I had little time to spare, she told herself with a rollicking laugh as she threw off the dark cloak and veil. Now he is all ready for the experiment, she cried, bending her dimpled, roguish face over the motionless pool. Ah, how plainly the dark water reflected every dainty feature as Bonnie Lynn bent over it. Let me see. The words that call up the vision are something like these, she murmured with a little saucy laugh. Of course it's all nonsense, but I'll say them anyhow. I'll cross my hands in the shape of a T, in hopes my true love I shall see, not in his riches nor in his array, but in the clothes he wears. Every day. 
The great clock in the valley struck the hour of midnight in hoarse, clanging strokes. And as the last vibration died away, out of the very depths of the black pool, out of the inky waters, a face seemed to gather shape. A man's face, peering up at her from over her shoulder in the water into which she gazed with wide, terror-stricken eyes. It was not the features of her handsome lover, Leroy Pierpoint, whose bride she was to be on the following week, that she saw. Like one petrified, she was staring down with frightened eyes into the face of Basil Severne, the man whom she had detested at first sight, the man whom Leroy had called an evil genius, a modern bluebeard. Bonnie Lynn staggered back, threw up her hands with a wild shriek, and fell down in the long grass in a dead faint on the very brink of the black pool. I did want to pull out one little reference from the scene that is actually brought up multiple times in the book, and that is calling Basil a modern bluebeard. Yeah, what is up with that? Okay, so I don't know if you ever read the fairy tale Bluebeard. I must not have because I did not get that reference at all. I recognized it enough to know that it was a fairy tale and that I had read the fairy tale at one point, but I could not remember what the fairy tale was about. So I went and I looked it up and I read it out loud to my husband. And I'm sorry, I would have been staying far away from that guy (laughs) because the fairy tale Bluebeard is about a guy who murders six wives and puts them in a little cellar. And his latest wife, he leaves for a little bit and gives her the keys to everything and is like, you may go anywhere in the house, but do not unlock that cellar door. And so then, of course, she does. Oh, my gosh. he figures it out. And he's (laughs) like, well, you're next to die. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And her brothers come in the nick of time to save her. But it's a horrific fairy tale. (laughs) So this is clearly a reference that readers back in the 1890s would have gotten. Now, what I did find fascinating, though, and I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but there were some similarities. Like, there is a part later in the book where Basil is standing over an innocent woman like he's about to kill her. And that literally happens in Bluebeard. Okay. He's standing over the woman with her hair falling down around her, getting ready to kill her. And she's saved in the nick of time, just like in the fairy tale. So perhaps the crime of Halloween is something of a modern retelling of the Bluebeard story? I don't think I would go that far, but I could see Basil being inspired by Bluebeard. Interesting. And there also seem to be some other weird Halloween rituals here. Like, she mentions this swinging horseshoe thing. Yes. What is that? Okay, I had to go look that up. What did you find? Because I didn't find anything. I don't know, (laughs) because I can't really find anything. I searched for it, like, for a while. I know. All I could find were search results for how to play indoor horseshoes. And that's not helpful. That's not what we're trying to find out here. So if anybody out there knows what a horseshoe has to do with celebrating Halloween. We would like to know. Please let us know. I want to know. It sounded almost like a mistletoe kind yeah. of thing. Like people standing under the swinging horseshoe. That was just weird. I wouldn't want a horseshoe falling on my head. No, but I really want to know why they mentioned it. Yeah, so this scene is a great example of what this entire book is like. Totally cheesy, first page to last. Bonnie Lynn is this frivolous, silly, irresponsible woman, always described as, you know, golden curls, bluebell eyes, and rosebud lips. And everyone is instantly smitten when they see her. Yeah, exactly. And that's pretty much this book's only Gibson girl connection. Yeah. That's all I saw is the beauty. Everyone is instantly drawn to her physical appearance. Right. Her attitude, her emotional, intellectual side has absolutely nothing to do with the Gibson girl whatsoever. And none of the men have anything to do with the Gibson men. Yeah. I thought all the characters were puppets. Mm Mm-hmm. But in a dime novel, I think that is the expectation. They're not supposed to be fleshed out, complex characters. That's true. They're supposed to be kind of one-noted, don't you think? In a sense, that was probably the appeal of the dime novel. Maybe. It's almost like the reason I love Hallmark movies. 
I know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. I know what to expect. But that means I can sit and I can enjoy it without worrying about something happening to upset me or can work while I watch it. And maybe that was kind of the appeal of the dime novels is these one-dimensional characters and they just got to have the fun of dramatic incidents for a while and a happily ever after. Maybe. Again, this is where I really wish I had the time right now to dive into more of the history of these stories in particular. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I mean, they were all kinds of things. They weren't all romances like Laura Jean Libby writes. In fact, most of the dime novels I always heard of were the adventure ones and the cowboy ones. Yeah. I had never really thought about it. When I hear the term dime novel, I always think Wild Bill Hickok. Yes. I think of dime novels as westerns. But clearly we have an example here of that they were so much more than westerns and that dime novels were written for girls just as much as they were for boys. Yeah, which is kind of fun. That's the kind of history behind the dime novels that I am absolutely fascinated to study. (laughs) Well, when you do, you'll have to come back on the show and update us. Yes, I'm pretty sure that this will not be our last dime (laughs) novel. No, but you're totally right. The characters were very one-dimensional. We've got the fainting, swooning Bonnie Lynn, and the super helpful friend, and the husband who's like, I must rescue my wife and carry her for miles in the rain. I know. She can't walk anywhere. She always has to be carried. No. She's always fainting. (laughs) Brain fever. Anybody who is emotionally stirred up is going to go insane. Oh, my gosh. I can't even believe how often that was mentioned. Right? Like, yes. This person is probably going to go insane because this terrible thing happened or they're upset. And like, uh-oh, watch for the signs of insanity. Yes. Calm yourself or you'll go mad. <laughs> <laughs> Strong emotions equal madness. Which again, I have to wonder if there are some historical clues in all of that. I mean, because you're talking about the time period where a husband could send his wife to an insane asylum for the teeniest, tiniest, most absurd reasons. Like if she burns his dinner, he could have her locked up as a hysterical and the law was on his side. I was kind of wondering the same thing like as I was reading it and even after thinking about it. Like I know it's overly dramatized because of the book it is. But it has to in some way reflect that day's thinking because I don't think she pulled that out of nowhere. Yeah. Based on this, the ideal of that Gilded Age time would be to be calm, emotions always in control. You can't get excited. You can't get riled up. Yeah. And whether that was for health reasons here, like they're saying, you know, calm yourself or you will go mad. Or if it was the social norm, like, you know, she causes a scene in a ballroom by accusing the other woman of wanting her husband. And, of course, decorum says, you would never do that. (laughs) As shallow as this story clearly is and intended to be, Mm -hmm. I think even then there is some subtext that can be gleaned from this about the culture in which these books were written and set and why they were so popular at that time. You know, maybe young women loved these kind of books because it provided them with an outlet for some emotional experience that culture and decorum rules otherwise frowned upon. That's entirely possible. I don't know. Because then you also have books that they're telling young women shouldn't read novels because it stirs them up. These are probably the kind of novels they're saying should not be read. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) In this kind, they're excitable. Like, compare something like The Crime of Halloween to Little Women. So, so different. Again, this is a whole big rabbit trail that is worth diving into because intentional or unintentional, I think there is a deeper relevance and history lesson to be learned from this book. Well, and there are definitely, like, speaking of relevance, well, not relevance, but really historical aspects You can see a lot of the assumptions just in some of the things that she didn't bother explaining too far. Like in the scene where Basil is clearly doing something to this woman in his house, the police just assume he has the right to do whatever he's doing and leave. Yeah, exactly. And she kind of mentioned that like, oh, if only they hadn't been bamboozled by this guy. He deceived them because he was so clever. But the underlying assumption there is that, of course, the police would assume he had the right to do whatever he was doing to this woman. That's one of the surprises for this book for me. 
despite the fact that I laughed almost the entire <laughs> way through it, because it is just so over the top. The more I think about it, it's little things like this that are rising to the surface that are making me more excited about it. Like, I'm actually liking this book more and more after I've read it. As we figure out what it's about. Yes, exactly. And gleaning these little nuggets like that. That's true, actually. That's a big surprise. Yeah, because the more we've talked about it, the more I've been like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think about it in that light. I know. We're kind of discovering it as we are talking about it in this episode, because even the notes that I wrote before we came into the studio today, I wasn't thinking of that. It's just kind of like yeah. these thoughts are coming to me as we talk and as we share the information and the research that we found. And it's just kind of like, wow. Which is why it's fun to talk about the book. It is. Because then it totally is. Instead of just setting it down as another book. We get to learn something. We get to grow as readers. And yeah, I want to read more of her books. As long as... The animals survive the future books, people. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> as I was reading this, I was texting you on Messenger, and it was like all caps and like 5,000 exclamation points. He killed a dog. Da, da, da. They shot a horse. Da, da, da. Like, oh, my gosh. Torture. And then you were writing back. You're like, yeah, and there are insane people. <laughs> So we both went into this book not knowing what we were going to get to, and we both end up traumatized because it's full of these things that we both personally hate to read stories about. Yeah. Injured oh animals. And insanity. <laughs> so that was kind of a challenge. Although, again, these things were clearly included in the story in the case of the animals. Just in case the dark mustache or the blue beard reference was not clue enough that this is a bad man. Yeah. Just in case you didn't hate him before. I know, Make right? sure you hate him now. That's the point where I was really like, Jacinta, what have you gotten me into? <laughs> oh, my god! Just gosh. trying to get you to face your fears. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was okay. That was a challenge. What about you? I was really irritated. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. In the whole ballroom scene, when Bonnie Lynn is upset and in a jealous rage because her husband has been with India all night. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, she's completely justified. He's like, you will apologize to her or you will no longer be my wife. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, he does. He what? threatens her with divorce, you know, apologize or I'm leaving you. Yes. I instantly am like, I thought I liked this guy. I changed my mind. But then throughout the rest of the book, he has this unswerving devotion to his wife, complete belief in her innocence, and she must be protected, and he'll do anything for her. And I'm like, except apparently stick with her I know. when he's spending time with another woman. That was so inconsistent in his character. Anyway, that kind of drove me crazy, yeah. even though it's a little tiny thing. That did <laughs> drive me crazy, too, because yeah, it was very... I love you. I would die for you. I'll leave you or else. I'll you know, just kind of very up and down. <laughs> he ran very hot and cold. Yeah. On the bright side, you're already so ready to laugh at everything in this book <laughs> that you bring in the crazy coincidences. Yes. And in a sense, it just adds to the humor. It is. It is so funny. Your real mistake is going to be in trying to take anything seriously. Oh my gosh. That is so perfectly said. <laughs> Read this book when you are having a bad day. That's what this book is. And maybe that's why they were written. Yeah. Maybe that was the whole thing. If you want true escapist read. This is it. This is absolutely it. But honestly, I really do recommend this book because this is such a unique thing that we don't really yeah. have anymore. We aren't allowed to have it anymore. We have some similar things to this, but this true dime novel phenomenon kind of died out with the introduction of motion pictures, I think. Oh, yeah. Looking at the time period. That's a good point. It's that kind of popular entertainment for the masses. Mm -hmm. They're called dime novels because they were cheap. They were printed and manufactured in such a way that you could buy one for 10 cents, whereas most books cost a dollar or more. Yeah. There are so many factors of this period in Gilded Age history that you can see contributing to the popularity of dime novels and then also contributing to their demise eventually in the 19-teens and 20s as the motion picture industry really kind of took up that entertainment for the masses gauntlet. Yeah, I never really made that connection, but you're totally right. That would have done it. That's my hypothesis, just looking at the rough timeline. Yeah, that would be fascinating to know. So that's me making that connection. 
Whether that's true or not, that's what it looks like to me. The medium changed, but the stories are the same. Yeah. Now we have Hallmark. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Gosh, I would love to see the Hallmark channel try to make a movie out of the crime of Halloween. Oh my gosh. Okay, speaking of which, did you see that actually several of her books were made into like plays and silent movies? I did see that mentioned somewhere. Yeah. Maybe that's why I am making this connection because I forgot I read that. But yeah, that makes sense. Like, think of the woman tied up on the train tracks as the trains come in and the hero's <laughs> got to rescue her in time before the train runs over her. That's what this book is like. Yeah. And that is such a stereotypical image of silent era movies. That would work well. It is the same thing. There are a couple more things that we need to discuss about the story. We've already kind of hinted at a couple things yeah. in this book that give it away a little bit. We couldn't have talked about it at all if we didn't. No, this would be a half hour episode of silence if we did not tell you some of the things that happened in this story. So you'll have to read it. Yes, exactly. But there are some major things that are revealed at the end of this book that we have to go to the spoiler room to talk about. Yes, please. Because I cannot leave the studio today without knowing what the heck this was all about. So before we wrap up today, we will just invite you to head over to gibsongirlreview.com and check out our spoiler room episode for The Crime of Halloween. You don't want to miss it. Because we've got more laughing to do and more to talk about with this book. So final thoughts on The Crime of Halloween. It's not really criminal. Nope. Other than the opening scene at this pond on Halloween night, it has nothing to do with Halloween. Not a thing. So as a book to include in our spooky mystery month, I think we missed the mark. But we tried really hard. <laughs> you know, we were fooled by the title. What can we say? She suckered us with a title as dramatic as The Crime of Halloween. Typical dime store novels. Uh, yes. In the end, I still think this was a good book to read. And I love the fact that we finally got to do a dime novel. Yes. And start delving into this whole new world of Gilded Age literature. I'm excited to read more. And this book did keep me engaged in turning mm -hmm. the pages, even if I was laughing while I was doing so. I agree. No, it was immensely entertaining. My poor husband, I kept running down to him to read bits out loud because I had to have <laughs> someone to laugh over it with me. Yes. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading it, especially once I understood it was not a novel that took itself seriously. Yes. And frankly, I've always been really curious about dime novels. And I had no idea that you could still read some today. So I love that we read it. And now it's time to close the cover on The Crime of Halloween by Laura Jean Levy. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I have to do that one more time. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Special thanks to our guest reader, Michelle Morgan, for tackling that very serious opening scene from The Crime of Halloween. Yeah, that was awesome. Join us next week for the exciting finale episode of Season 2, when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, keep reading like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com. Season two is almost over. Dun, oh dun, dun. <laughs> there, I got it out. <laughs>